Hello friends, my name is Jude McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. If you're curious, go to their website, epicprojects.org. So our guest on the pod today is the Scouse Yemeni poet and performance artist, Amina Atik. She is a talented and imaginative and greatly eloquent poet, a creative practitioner and award-winning community activist. She was an ABBC Words First finalist in 2019 and an alumni of the Young Associate and anti-racism group Curious Minds. Amina deftly straddles the community she considers herself a proud member of. As a Scouser and the pride she has in her city of Liverpool, her faith and her connection to Yemen and the Yemeni diaspora in the north of England. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and they teach them to read for free. And they also have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. Amina brought all of her humanity and her intelligence and great eloquence and vernacular to this interview. and We knew it would be a special episode. So without further ado, here it is. Great. Well, firstly, I want to say, Amina, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation and talking with you. So thank you. No, no, thank you. I'm really, um, I'm intrigued and curious to see um, how speaking about dyslexia for the first time is going to pan out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I lived in Liverpool for a couple of years. I got a sense of it um, as as a community. Uh, lots of things about it as a place aligned with uh, things uh, politically that I agree with and uh, the the community feeling that's there. And you straddle uh, many communities within that community, um, your internal politics and, and, and the, the uh, radicalism of that particular city. And then uh, being an artist and, of course, being a Yemeni in um, the north. So how those things intersect, it's a very big question to start with. <laughs> with your dyslexia is sort of where I want to start the conversation. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool is a city with a big soul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It does have its own dark past of, um, you know, the, the Atlantic slavery, but also mm-hmm. it's, Liverpool has, it also has a special place where migrants have settled from across the world. Mm. And I think this is where the accent and the personality, the charisma comes into it. <laughs> um, Liverpool's port, I mean, someone knows somebody who has a grandfather who came through the port of Liverpool. Mm. Um, and my granddad was one of them. You know, he came to Liverpool right just a few years after World War Two. Right. Um, hence why my family now are brought up in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. because of my granddad's journey to Liverpool. Um, but of course, you know, you start to embed and embody the city that you live in. And yeah. you 
you know, and, and, I, and I write about this a lot in my poetry. When, when, when do you pick up the accent that you're, you embody the city that you live in? Yeah. But then how much does that make you of a Scouser? How much does that make you of a Yemeni or Arab? And all these identities become part of your intersexualities and, and they yeah. become part of who you are. But then obviously when you have then dyslexia <laughs> and then you're a writer, it's like, what does that mean? Yeah. And then which identity comes first? Yeah. And then is it a barrier or is it, you know, or is it a blessing? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's how I felt when I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was in university. Yeah. I knew already growing up, I was a sore thumb. Like I, I stuck out from a crowd. Just yeah. just feeling like, like just a paranoia of like you're not good enough with words or the way you think is always outside the box or the way you articulate on page, but when you articulate to others, it's... And your mind doesn't go from A to B, it goes from A to Z and it goes back to B. And it is, it's, when you understand yeah. how your mind works, it's, it's, it's a magical thing. And yes. it's definitely a blessing. Um, but I also feel like systematically, like within the education system, it has failed many, mm. many people. Mm. And we're called the noisy and the naughty kids, the kids that can't stay still or... Or we're frustrated because we're told to cross words that we can't spell in red. But mm. you literally thought that you spelled it correctly. <laughs> so the yeah. word, my worst nightmare was, you know, the spelling tests. Yeah. I would miss the Friday yeah. afternoon because I'm off sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'll be many people listening who'll be having heart palpitations at remembering uh, spelling spelling tests on a Friday. I'm sure that was the equivalent thing for the for people who live in, listening in America or, or other places, but yes, it's a familiar feeling for dyslexics that uh, a spelling test on a Friday, yeah, horrendous. <laughs> but um, well, I think we're better, we're in a better place because you have creatives and educators who are also dyslexic mm. uh, or neurodiverse who are now leading the way in this conversation, who are becoming policy makers, who are changing you know, like educating, like these things are yeah. real, but how do we create a classroom that is safe and is accessible for all of that different type of learning? I remember growing up, it was either you're a visual or a kinesthetic learner or, yeah. but what if you're all of it? Like, because mm. mm. I know people who are dyslexic who are everything, they want to be practical and they, they want sensory, they want, and I think... Yeah. Entering the creative world, and a lot of people say, well, how are you a writer and dyslexic? Isn't that a barrier? I'm like, no. Because until you understand how your mind works and what things you need, like a toolkit, to create yeah. the best work, then you, 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 know, you can live a, a dignified life as an artist, and one that is happy and one that is accessible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it maybe one, you need different forms of approaches for different subjects. You know, I, I think I'm dyscalculic as well. You know, my, uh, my number dyslexia is, is horrendous. Uh, and maybe for that, I might have needed sensory. And for something else, I might have needed something, something different. Um, you know, there are certain things that I loved, like history, for example, um, that I could sit in the, the standard industrial revolution, you know, uh, teacher talks at me, I write it down, I might talk to the person next to me. But there are other subjects whereby I might have needed something else in order to help me learn and understand. Um, so when you write, do you, do you write your poetry 
with an accent, with a Scouse accent? Um, do you, or do you think in in other terms? Is it not something you think about? Well, I am bilingual, so I also speak Arabic, which mm-hmm. has a massive impact in like, especially poetry, because Arabic poetry can describe love in probably a hundred ways than English yeah. can do. Right. So a lot of people say like, oh, what language do you think in first? And I'm like, oh, well, I've got three. Arabic, English, <laughs> house, then dyslexia. Yeah. I, I think in Arabic all the time. Like I have a really strong, especially from a creative aspect, I'm creatively in sync with my ancestors of Arab mm. poets. Like yeah. there's something in me that just provokes me when I listen to Arabic poetry. Also because I can't write Arabic poetry. So I, I it's like an envious, like I, I envy. So I, I just listen to it because it challenges me. Yeah. So I definitely think in Arabic and I write, I write in, in the accent that I'm feeling in. So what I mean by this is mm. I grew up watching American poets. Uh-huh like deaf poetry on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching a poet called Emile Suleiman. It was just a, a spoken word piece. And I remember he was saying, you know, I'm not dangerous. I am danger. I'm not angry. I am anger. And obviously he was talking about police brutality and young black men. But I remember feeling frustrated at the age of 15. And I thought, this is so powerful how the audience are just so in sync and listening to this. So as a performer, I started to like put imitating American poets. So yeah. I didn't even perform yeah. in a Scouse accent. I was performing in an American yeah. accent. It was only until I, I joined the BBC Words First and it's a competition. Yeah. And the the mentor that like the judge mentor that was mentoring us was like, you're talking about Liverpool in an American accent. <laughs> like where are we here? And I think it had like an identity crisis because I literally thought I was imitating poets that I really were fond of, but I didn't know right. I can use my own accent. I, yeah. I just didn't know. I didn't know that I could be a poet with a Scouse accent and be yeah. accepted and respected. And I remember in the competition, I got up and I was like, okay, I'm going to do my first poem in a Scouse accent. And I'm so glad I did because... Finding your voice and your creative practice takes time. Totally, yeah. It, what, what was it for you, as obviously as an actor? Because you, you, I, like I always find it fascinating with actors, like the fact that you're given a different script of someone else's life and you have to imitate a different accent. And I, it's so brave and courageous and I, I don't think I'd be, I, like, I've just found my voice. Imagine finding someone else's voice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's odd. You're you use you're utilizing yourself within within those circumstances. Um, the best quote by Aysen is living truthfully under the given circumstances. So, given the circumstances that you're in, you know, albeit you know, if you're playing, you know, if you're in All My Sons or something like that, View from the Bridge, you're an Italian American in the 1940s or 50s. What is that lived in reality? And you serve those circumstances, and but it's you in those set of circumstances, yeah. how I, how I would react. Um, you know, would I, would I act the same way? Is it like that in my life? So it's, it's the idea of me getting up Jude and delivering my own poetry is incredibly, uh, terrifying and would make me feel very vulnerable. Mm. I'm not me. I am me, but I'm not me. It's a weird, mm. um, uh, uh, thing to sort of wrap your brain around. Um, so it doesn't feel like myself and it, it, it more felt like the, the, the child flow state, you know, if 
we were like playing with Lego for three hours, or if me and you were playing and, you know, I'd say, I'm a dragon, you're the dragon slayer, and three hours have gone by. <laughs> it's that that I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, to get back. So it doesn't ever feel like me. And it always feels like um, I feel like an imposter because I'm being paid to pretend. Do you know what I mean? I'm being paid to play. Uh, it doesn't feel like work. You know, I've worked with in SEND schools with disabled children. That's work. Let me tell you, that is hard work. The people who do yeah. that are, you know, they get paid nothing and they they work. Mm. Being an actor is not work. You know, it's not. It's not. It's playing with your mates if it's going really well. You know, well, they, you know, the old cliche: if you're doing TV, they're paying you to wait. They don't pay you to act because you're waiting for hours for the, the lights to move and the, you know, someone to do your hair or whatever. The acting's, you know, it's like it's like you. Like you, I'm sure you could write a poem for free. Well, this is the thing. I think it's it's what perspective you're looking at, and I think looking from a perspective as a poet who who I feel like. I could never act on someone else's script and I find that quite difficult, which I sure. have tried in the past. But because that's a talent and you see that as just being just playful and, mm. and, and this is why creativity is so objective because it's like it means something different for everyone. Um, but then like totally. when you add, when you, but then when you add neurodiversity in there, is it that people, because, you know, I, I see it a lot when I work with young people I feel like being a creative, someone who who's a practicing artist, but also understands the access world a little bit from lived experience, actually makes you a better practitioner in the room. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah. I'm not saying that like obviously you can always develop to be a better workshop practitioner, but I don't know. It just make, I feel a little bit more closer when I meet children who are autistic or have dyslexia yeah. and. And I feel a little bit more connected because I feel like I can make a change in the room. Yes. Um, and I always find that like the special part of my 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 work work. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's it's just special to identify and you identify who's in the room, but also give it like empowering individuals in that room, knowing that you have potential, but because you like to fidget and <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Like come on like get up and become my assistant and and I did that once you know like you know I was like come on get up you know like come come and pass around the papers with me and he was so excited within 15 minutes he was like I'm tired now miss can I sit down I was like yeah and then he sat down and he literally sat down for 20 minutes and wrote one of the most eloquent pieces I've ever read from a nine-year-old and sometimes it's just you know, I, I just feel like, yeah, it's it's just got a special place in me. Like I, that's a big part of like coming off stage and going into schools, community centres and being able to empower other young people to use art as an, an expressive outlet, despite whatever they're going through. It is just powerful. Yeah, completely, completely. I, I, I want to come back to that point, but it's just a thought that's, that's come to me. Like the irony, uh, I don't want to um, traduce my own struggle in terms of um, becoming more comfortable with text. It's ironic that, so both me and you, um, the way we express our art is through words and we have an issue with it. Our, you know, our brains have an issue with it, but in order for us to, you know, they're the prism through which we can then, you know, filter out the thing that we do, the thing that we enjoy. And 
they're, you know, they're, they're essential, but often they fill us with dread and they're often really, you know, hard. Um, and it is hard. It is hard to get your brain around um, another yeah. human being's um, uh, art um, and, and their words. That's really where the challenge is, how you interpret it. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's ironic. Like, was that, has that ever been something you've thought about? Like, I love words. I love poetry, but wow, this is, this is really hard. And my brain is, is, is taking longer. Why is it taking longer? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, definitely. I mean, um, when you were talking, I, I wrote down on my piece of paper maps because, even before, you know, getting into like the creative space where I'm going to express and write, get into places mm-hmm. is the most difficult part. Like, like I, I can't read maps and and there's been a few times where I've literally sat like on the sideline and cried my eyes out because I, I'm confused where I'm going to the right. point where now I'm, I'm late to the point where now like I feel unprofessional and then imposter syndrome comes in and then it's like, am I in the right industry? And it, all of that. Of course. And yeah. like, and, and people don't understand, yes, like you can become a successful artist and you can have, you can be disabled or you can have dyslexia or, but then it's like the, the, the access to even get to these places, I don't think people really understand the, the emotional, like <laughs> gravity of it. Like, and, and yeah. sometimes I, I like to ignore it because I don't want to put myself in a victimized situation where I'm like oh because then I like to think oh there's other people who you know don't even have wheelchair access to venues and and I'm sitting there complaining because I can't read the map when I can just get a taxi but then I think sometimes like like I, I genuinely have cried like I've cried looking at my thinking am I so thick what is wrong with me yeah um I mean it happened yesterday I was in you know I was in the streets of Berlin and the bus stop was across the road, but my mind just could not read it. Like, I just could not read it. Yeah. But um, so instead of taking me a 10-minute journey, it ended up taking me an hour. So right. these are the things you've got to put in place as an artist. If you get into venues, sometimes I have to visit the place before, I, before I've got a proper important event, just so yeah. that I don't make that mistake by getting lost. But in terms of creating the art... Look, I, there's a pro and the con of it. The, 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 pro, the pro of it is that if you have, if you, the environment that you're in, if it's accessible to you and you have things in place, I think it can be a magical thing because your brain works in different ways. Like, yeah. But the, 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 the other side of that is like, um, for example, when I write poetry, I don't, because I'm a visual learner and I love images, I create a mm. storyboard. Right. So instead of me going straight into writing and frustrating my brain, because words are my worst enemy, apparently. Mm-hmm. So what I do, I, I I draw out a sketch what I'm going to write. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I create a magical place for it. So I, I put like a like a, a big like um, A3 paper on on the wall, and I'll I create a storyboard, and then it just makes the writing a lot easier. Um. And we're, we're, we're living in a time where we have access to like digital software where you can record things and sometimes it'll type it up for you, all of that. Um, so I feel like it's understanding what we have around us that can make things easier, but also yes. understanding like, what, what do I want? Like, how do I want to get to there? 
I, I like writing and performing poetry, but how am I going to get there? How am I going to make it the most fun the most fun and exciting part of this process. How am I going to do that? And I, and I like it. I like doing that. The only problem is if I'm put into, say, like if I have to work with other people, so like I'm in a room full of academics mm-hmm. and I've got to create a poem within an hour. The yeah. system that I've put, my safe space, the system that I've created, I can no longer have access to that. Yeah. And I think this is where it frustrates. Like I'm now in Berlin with some incredible academics and I want a mind map. I want to use colours and sticky notes, but I feel silly to do that. You know, and, and, and it's like because no one else is doing it. Yeah. I want to sketch. And and yeah, I do. I sketch a lot and I draw shapes, but yeah, it's it's frustrating and it gets me angry and it probably gets me upset. But I also like to look at the positive side, like the fortune. I'm 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 a fortunate artist to be able to be paid for my art and to have to be able mm. to put access in that, to have a room and a space and a studio space, to be able to create, you know, a forest of sticky notes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose uh, my question has to be like, so what is what is it you're producing with these academics? So you're in Berlin, you're are you, are you, are you literally producing a pie within an hour with these academics? This is part of a residency around social cohesion. Um so we're 10 of us from across the world. So India, Peru, uh, Prague, um, London, New York. I mean, there's different people from different parts of the world. And some people are journalists, academics, social scientists. And then you've got journalists, video filmmakers, and then right. myself as an artist. Um, and yeah, it's been an interesting experience, but I've used that as an example when we are in that space I found it really uncomfortable sometimes because the way the way I extract information or understand information is a lot different from the mainstream way of and I think I haven't been in I haven't been in a space like this for a very long time because I've been freelancing for so long mm. and I've been with artists and art spaces. It just reminded me of academia, like being in an academic setting and how frustrated and lonely it can be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm enjoying my time. I've also realized what that space feels like again. Um, Mm. Yeah. I mean, I I would hope that you'd be empowered given, you know, your, your strength is, is your creativity. You'd be empowered to utilize your work around as as a dyslexic neurodivergent person, but also to utilize your craft as an, as an artist, you know, um, uh, they may well be utilizing their academic craft, which obviously isn't as colorful or as visual or as imaginative, but you know, that's, that's why you're in the room. Um, and I, and I have no doubt it would bring up old, I mean, I don't know if trauma is the right word. It can be trauma for dyslexic people and neurodivergent people within a classroom setting when you're surrounded by people who seemingly have no issue at all with the things that your brain is on fire with. Um, so I would, yeah, I mean, I would hope that they, they would empower you to utilize the space however you want, you know, and and then be inspired by it. But then is that their job to do that? Because I, one thing that I, I, I always question myself, do I have to declare when I go into a room to everyone that I'm dyslexic? (laughs) <laughs> when, when do you declare it? Like, yeah. And sometimes I don't. I don't. Want, I sometimes don't feel comfortable to say. Oh, by the way, I'm dyslexic because for me it's like I don't. I don't want to have to always say it. Like I want to just. I, I, maybe some people might disagree with me here because it's really important to really say it because then people understand that 
that there are different types of people in the room and people need act. But then I choose when to say it and when I feel safe to do so because I don't know, how, how does it feel for you? Like, is this something that you declare? Like, Well, like, I, like you, I, um, you very eloquently said, like when, you were, when you're leading something, you're leading a workshop, you're looking out for it because you are neurodivergent, because you are dyslexic. And, it's, and it's, uh, you used a lovely phrase. You said you change the room. And it really does change the room when you, uh, when any teacher or anyone leading a room, because I teach acting as well, you can cross over somehow and go, I'm on your side. You know, it's not going to be, you sit there, shut up, listen to me because I'm all knowing. It's, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm understanding, I have empathy for you. So, yeah. you know, however you need to work, th then, then that's cool. Within, within, no, we want chaos, but you know, however you need to work, great and, I, and I'm here and supportive of it so one would hope that whoever's leading this room with you would empower you to do that um, I, I, I pick my moments um, one of the most satisfying moments for me like a drama school is lots of by the time I finished my training lots of people had no idea I was dyslexic because I got to a point with with words and text and sight reading that it, it was never an issue for me I could just yeah. you know read it and make choices um, so yeah, like you, I mean, it's, it's, it is a bit, it's tough, isn't it? To be like, uh, immediately, hi, I'm, I'm Jude. I'm dyslexic by the way, guys. So, you know, because it also manifests in different, in, in different ways for different dyslexic people. It, it does. And, that, and that's why I feel like some people might disagree with me because it, some people, when they declare it, it's empowering for them to do that. But I have declared it before and people don't actually understand what that means. So I feel like maybe was there any point to even saying it and, mm. and also it's just the way it makes you feel like as if as if you have an issue and a problem and maybe this is a me problem because I haven't come to terms with it or I haven't accepted that this is part of my life and like I said like I have embarrassingly sat and cried on the sideline of a road because I can't follow a map and that is true like the daily life effect of it is real yeah um yeah but I, I think I'm just in a position where I do sometimes ignore it only based on the fact that it's just part of that resilience. And also looking at my intersexualities of also being a Muslim woman, Arab, a woman of colour, like you're already facing all these other systematic problems in the world. And it's like, yeah. ugh, do I want to add another one like to the mixture? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, who? Yeah. but then on the other side, you know, being Muslim, a woman of colour, being dyslexic is a blessing too, because it, like being able to work with young people, being able to work on, you know, to consult or or to go into organisations and become an ambassador of a disabled organisation. Like, you know, these things come in at a good place because now you can make real change happen. Yes. And then there's something about suffering as well, um, if, if one can utilise that word. Like when, when you've experienced suffering, um, it obviously increases your empathy an understanding of other people's mm. suffering. Um, and as you say, it then means that you can lead that conversation on how you, how you help make the world better. Because if someone hasn't sadly felt something for themselves, they don't know what the issue is and they don't know what to do about it. You know, and we're, we're having so many conversations about that where, you know, within society now, like when you, quite understandably say, well, that's, that's sexist, that's racist or, or something. And people have no conception that it is because it yeah. doesn't directly affect them. 
it's not within their sphere of empathy or understanding. Yeah. Um, so the blessing there is, for me personally, is is going, you know, well, I, I struggle with this and I don't want anybody else to struggle with it. So I, I'm going to be considerate and try and help them. No, of course. And I, I, I always tend to think like for the future, like what does, what does dyslexia mean? And, and, and I'm going to end I'm going to enter a territory here, but I, I want to be honest. Sure. Like we live in a time where like people are now self-diagnosing themselves. Yeah. And I think it, there's a territory where like, oh, what about those who have gone through psychological tests and have, and have been diagnosed? Like, and I don't have the answer, but it's just something that I've been thinking about. Like, we need a better system. Children need to children need to be diagnosed from an very early age so that they know they what they need, how parents can be supported, and all of that. Mm. Especially with autism, it's the biggest question now. You know, you you've got children who grow young people when they grow up to the age of sixteen who then enter like gangs and all that only because they've they've been frustrated all their lives and excluded from school, from family life, only because they're autistic, then they, and not, not everyone, but there has been statistics that show that. Yeah. Um, and gangs like to groom young children who are neurodiverse, which is interesting. Mm. So, but we could, that's wow. another conversation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's just like stuff like to think about is like, what's the future of being dyslexic and being in a world where like now children are not reading as much. Like, yeah. We're using technology more than ever. Our attention span is quicker. So are we all like going into the territory of like becoming like more dyslexic? <laughs> because <laughs> we're, we're, we're not reading as much as we were. So how do we, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Am I articulating this right? You are, you are totally. The world is changing and how we access information is different. Absolutely. I mean, you're touching on many interesting topics i mean firstly diagnosis of of um neurodivergence or you know if if, if you have other things which compromise your mental well-being um clearly across our health service um there needs to be better diagnosis for people because that's primarily as as we get fitter and healthier you know uh mental health issues are going to be the the main thing neurodivergence affects your mental health you know um it can really affect your your self-esteem massively um lots of um neurodivergent people feel feel that way you know um so i completely agree that you know we need we need greater testing uh i have matt hancock we have matt hancock on the podcast talking trying to push um for um you know his own uh earlier screenings for people who were mm. you know at the age of six um i think we were skeptical as to whether or not that was um a conservative doing some virtue signaling um mm. to try and you know change people's public perception of him the reality is that would cost millions of pounds just you know to test people but then of course cool great so now we know that there are 20 million children with dyslexia um or who are autistic what then you know, cool. You got a diagnosis, which which is massive. I'm not I'm not belittling that, but then how do you help them? How do you how do yeah. you get them the support that they need? And you know, it's great the conversations we're having around mental health and mental well being, but I think sometimes people are putting labels on themselves because they now have the lexicon with which they can diagnose themselves, and they might be misdiagnosing themselves because we all have bouts of anxiety and sometimes depression. 
but it doesn't mean that you all you have a propensity to it. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? And there's a danger there, like you, because you start. We all have narratives about ourselves, and some of them are true, and some of them are not. And you start feeding narratives which aren't true and are unhelpful. Yeah. If you don't have a diagnosis, if you don't have someone saying, "No, this is what you have. This is what you don't have." Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm in agreement with you, and you touched on some some massive, some massive <laughs> issues. No, of course, and you know, you, you see now like forty-year-olds. Um, like I, I know people in their forties, fifties who are now getting their first dyslexia testing or mm. ADHD, and and it's yeah. empowering because you can see the the changes that it's making to their lives. But this is like what thirty, forty years later. Yeah. Um, but then you've got the younger generation now, like you said, who is mis self-diagnosing themselves, and I think it's getting into a territory where it's like, oh, we have to be careful here because then yes. it's taking away people who are really struggling, and it's not temporary. Yeah. You know, it's not a temporary time where we're feeling, or we've, you know, we missed two years of our education where we feel a little bit like we're not accessing information as we are. But you see, look, um, we can definitely leave that to like researchers and yes. <laughs> but smarter people kind of than like... me, sure. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's what I mean. Genuinely, smart people who do it for a job, you know, not uh, actors. But it's just an observation, of course. Um, because there are a lot of young children that who are not diagnosed by the school, but you could tell straight away that they're, you know, they're just struggling in the way they're accessing the information, but you just yeah. do it differently in that space or time. But then teachers just don't have the time no. to meet the needs of every child in the classroom. And this is the other thing. When we talk about access, why do we talk about it as like this thing that's going to change people's lives? No, it should be a daily thing. It should be something that should be in place already. Like even when we talk about creative captioning, like I did a, um, um, a workshop on it and I learned so much from it because creative captioning should be creative. It should be funny. It should be, it shouldn't have to be like, oh, there's a young man with black hair standing on the stage. Like make it funny, make it creative, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and that's something I learned from like other access practitioners and inclusion. They say, you know, just make it humanistic and dignify it. Like don't make it as if like we're putting things in place yeah. to, remo to remove a barrier. No, we're, we're putting things in place to empower people's lives. Mm. And I think the way we talk about it should be like the way I'm moving my hands right now on Zoom, like it should be hmm. about changing people's lives to feel like they could empower themselves. Yeah. And I did I I I realized that when I came out of the academia setting yeah. and I entered the world of art. And and you know, the art and cultural sector has its own problems from a lack of funding to power structures and all of that. But it is still a place where ethics is questioned and access is so progressive compared to other sectors. Like the first thing I, when I came into Berlin, the first thing I asked was like, oh, has anyone got any access requirements? That's the first question I asked. Right. But for, that, for everyone in the room, that was a bit strange. Yeah. <laughs> But that's normal language. Like that's the language that we use in these settings. Like when I when we go into a room, okay, anyone got any access requirements that we need to know so that I can help you be the better version of you in the space? Yeah. Like these, this is the terminology that we use. We use group contracts, contracts, and we use. And I just think, wow, like I'm so glad to be in a sector where we are. We are a bit 
a little bit more progressive when it comes to these changes and asking the right questions. I, I really like the point you're making uh, about um, people wanting to do and have their own agency. You know, people don't want to rely on other people. They want to be able to do it for themselves. And I think that's a, a common a misconception potentially about you know people like people like you who, who ask those questions. Does anyone have the next you know accessibility issues? Um, it's about uh, everybody in the room being able to be completely self reliant because as, as a fully able person, you know, I don't have any issues coming in and I can come and go as I, as I please. I have my own agency. And, and that should be a basic, that should be something that everybody has, but everybody doesn't have. And it's, it's massive for you to, you know, whether you're academic or a creative, for you to be the best that you can be in that room. Of course, and I think it's also based on social cohesion, like the topic that we're discussing here in Berlin is, you know, this is intersexualities and different identities that we need to really think about when we are in this room. And I think when we see it from a positive outcome, like we want to create the best work here. Mm. And I think when we have the right attitude for that, I think it is about empowering people and, you know, I, I am a writer, but my 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 special kind of like aspiration in terms of the future is really to become a policymaker within the art and the culture and looking at looking at access and looking at how people access and who accesses this, who gets to tell whose story and all of these things. But in in that place, making sure that people have the most enjoyable experience. Yeah. Like, why can't we just enjoy things? And we can only enjoy them when we make things empowering for people when people can pick yeah. up that when a child can pick up its own paintbrush or pen and write its own story it is powerful it really is and um yeah I, you know what it's been 10 years i've been writing poetry and every day it's getting easier um and i think it's only getting easier because i've been able to come out of my own space and think what do i need to do to make the best work Mm -hmm. And I make sure that I put these things in place and I do it with, you know, with, with dignity and, and to the point where like I'm sure of myself mm. and, and with confidence because in that process there's a lot of healing to do because, I mean, to, to get diagnosed at university at a time where like you're literally like at an important time of your education and you're getting told that you're doing an English degree but you're dyslexic now and it's like, what does that mean? Yeah, and then when your lecturer says you have this f like fantastic mind that just thinks outside the box, but the way you articulate on the page is just it's different. Mm. And even though I I thank for my lecturer for taking his time to really identify me in the room amongst two hundred students, mm -hmm. but I think that's because I I always knock at his door every, after hmm. every Friday seminar and be like. Okay, I've got a different idea for my essay. <laughs> yeah. But I think the reason why I kept knocking at his door is because of self-assurance. I needed assurance that I was doing the right thing because I was constantly questioning why I was struggling to write, but I had yeah. ideas. And I yeah. think this is why the art world just became accessible and it became a world that I felt like I can experiment here without mm. following particular rules. I mean, poetry is, you can do that. Shakespeare made made up his own words, and if Shakespeare yeah. can do that, then I'm sure probably, then, you know, absolutely. Um, but yeah, just so much to talk about, and I just don't want people who are listening to think that 
because of one story that I've been able to become a writer and dyslexic because there are many writers out there who love writing but can't write. And mm. I don't want to use my experiences like one successful and that's for everyone because I know I have a lot of friends who are dyslexic and they really struggle to write. Mm. Um, but they love reading and they want to read, but they just can't concentrate more than 15 minutes. And it's like, yeah. I, and I think people also understand it's a spectrum. So yeah. there are people different at different levels. And also we have to talk about class and economy. Like, like that's the biggest thing as well, because if you come from a low economical background, then you're less likely to be able to get the support that you need to Actually. be able to, like, to you know, instead of writing, you can, you know, you can buy a piano and start playing a different musical instrument. Some families can't do that and they can't provide other creative outlets in the house. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's definitely also a privilege um, aspect as well who gets to... Yeah. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. Um, that's the sad reality. The sad reality still is that um, whether it's conscious or unconscious and for some uh, within our society is absolutely conscious is this who deserves and who doesn't. Yeah. And that comes down, uh, sadly, not to how uh, the, the income of, of the parents in the house. And when you start saying that, the only people who are uh, worthy of support of affluent children or the you know the children of affluent parents, you have a problem because you're going to lose Shakespeare. I mean, how many Shakespeare's have we lost? Um, <laughs> how how many other you know Wilfred Owens or whoever we have lost because you know look, I mean Shakespeare what he was the son of a glove maker you know he was an affluent middle class boy from Stratford or mm. you know however many people you want to name um, you you'll lose gems you'll lose you know beautiful artists architects because they're slipping through the net and i'm sure you remember from like you know i remember from secondary school i you know seeing uh children quite often dudes who were you know disrupting the lesson talking back to the teacher being cheeky talking to their mate too much they probably have an un undiagnosed issue but they're from a uh, lower working class background they don't have the support their parents don't even know to ask for it you know they don't yeah. even know that, that, that those are a, that's a thing mm. um like you know my mum had dyslexia was a labor counselor um and fought tooth and nail you know for her children to get screened and to get the support um and was a pain in the ass and you need someone who's going to be a pain in the ass for you um, unfortunately, within this system, it's, that shouldn't be the way. It, as you say, yeah. it should just be there. It should just be something because you should, of course, look at children as uh, the, the, for the potentials that they could be. If, if they could be a surgeon, great. The more surgeons we have in the country, the healthier everybody is. You know? Mm. No, of course. And, and within that is definitely, I, I, I would like to see more training if you know if if the conversation around dyslexia is improving and children are getting the right access um like i've gotten to schools where now they're using technology and they're using laptops which is great because i know as someone who writes i like to write on pieces of paper but i love editing on the computer it just makes it easier to transfer words use you know spelling and the grammar function and the fact that schools now have that kind of like they're getting the right prioritizing where the funding goes, it's seeing that all children get to 
not not just like, oh, that child's using a computer because they're dyslexic and they're different. No, everyone gets to use a laptop because yeah. it, it all empowers all of us. So I think yes. we need to be creating a system that's like that where like we don't just like, and also I know that sometimes children need kind of like certain type of special care in the room and stuff like that. But also it's really important that I'm not segregating the children or they're not mm-hmm. visually looking different. But yeah, there's a lot of changes going on and I think sometimes it is just a financial thing. Like we, the country yeah. just not prioritising the funding properly and putting the... And also... When children are diagnosed early and getting the right help, they can have a really, you know, they, they can um, most likely have um, a life with less obstacles um, in the future. Yeah, I, I want to come back to um, a question about um, about uh, poetry um, within Yemen, but also, I, I suppose, in the Arab world as well. Like, are there, I, I'm assuming, and forgive my ignorance here, and this is exactly why I'm asking you, um, are there structures like like Shakespeare, like iambic, or you know, um, yeah, cu- cultural things which are um, unique to it that have its own their own rules and their own? Yeah, I mean, I feel like every country in the world likes to claim that they were the first country or culture that writes poetry. <laughs> and Arabs like sure. Arab, the Arabs like to claim that they say, right. you know. Like when I say, oh, I write in English, they're like, English poetry? What does what's that? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. and I think I think it's it just comes from because the Arabic language is such it's such a very rich language. And what I mean by that is firstly there's an extra two alphabet in, wow. in the Arabic language. Also, the way you describe a word you can describe it in such a many ways. For example, if someone comes into the room in Arabic, we can say you light up the room. Like that's a normal thing to say when someone comes into the room. Like yeah. you light up the room. <laughs> and it's such a, a poetic language already. Like it's it's a, such a romantic language. And so that's why I like to think in Arabic because especially when I write things based on tragic things, Arabic allows me to really provoke a different part of my emotions because it allows me to express it in multiple ways. Mm. With English... It's a great language. It's very simplistic, straightforward, but it's not. It's not quite as expressive as the Arabic. So, in mm. Arabic poetry, I think from my from my knowledge, because I'm not I'm not a student of Arabic poetry, but what I do know is that there's a form called Al Ghazal. The Arabs claim it, but also the Persians do and the Asians do. So, <laughs> um, but it's such it's such a unique form because it's performative. And what that means is that it's read out to an audience. It's meant to be read out to an audience. And this type of poem in the structure is only written if death is involved or love. <laughs> so this the most two tragic things that can happen to a human being. <laughs> and <laughs> and the poets when they when they when they write in this form, they they end like nearly every last sen- sentence with the same word. So what happens is the audience shouts out that word. Right, okay, So if if the last word is love, the word love will be repeated. But you could imagine at a time where poetry was such an oral aspect that people would perform in front of hundreds of people and you could hear like the words being repeated, like this echo. So it's such a performative, um, you know, structure. And I I think it's great when you look at it like from a, like a, 
you know, like when we look at that, like when poetry is used in rallies or fighting around like anything anti. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and it's been happening for centuries where like, especially with anti-racism, you get like rallies, you get like music days against mm. anti-racism. So I always see that form as that, like it's, it's, a, it's a form that is performative, it's radical, it wants to bring, it's calling out for change. Um, so I, I love that form. I, I genuinely love it. And I, I, I've tried it a little bit when I do workshops with young people and they love it because they just shout yeah. out the words back at you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when we look at the history of like storytelling and oral stories, like my grandma can't read or write, but she will tell you, she will tell you a great story. Yeah. You know, she'll tell you an amazing yeah. story. And sometimes we really undermine oral stories. We undermine that historical way of storytelling. Do we need to document everything? Do we need to actually write everything? Because there's, there's this beauty in actually, you know what? I want to tell a story once and I want it to travel. And yeah. I want it to change. I want it, I want my story to turn into a myth, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And probably the story that my grandmother's telling me has gone through five different versions that it's turned yeah. into a myth. But I, I, I find that, you know, very historical and that makes us very human. Because now we live in a time where we're recording everything. Yeah. And I love the fact that sometimes do we have to know everything? You know, can we leave... Can we leave the gaps of like the unknown, the gaps of silence, the, you know, the gaps of like of a puzzle? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, obviously, you know. And it's, it's yeah, they, they, I'm sure the oldest form of creativity was telling a story, telling a funny story to somebody else, you know. Um, and that's, I mean, that's quite often where uh, actors frame... Um, you know, uh, uh, acting as, as being the oldest form of story of, of um, creativity because it was us together in our community telling a story, telling a funny story um, yeah. about love or death or or whatever it is. No, of course. Um, human beings, we, in the, in the Arabic word, uh, um, to describe a human, we say insan. And the meaning of that is to forget. So... And I always use that like allergy because it's like human beings, we also are forgetful people. Mm, yeah. And I think, I think sometimes, and that, and that can go back to our first conversation about dyslexia and understanding and having empathy for others is that we are, we are people of forget who are forgetful. And uh, I think one thing that I will get out of this interview is like, you know, what is next and how can we build empathy when we're meeting people that we don't know? Who, who mm. do we know who's in the room? Who needs that extra support? Or like, and I think we are as human beings becoming a little bit more understanding of that. And especially me, like one thing that I've learned from mentors and practitioners and people that I've learned through artists is that we are getting better at that. We're getting better at listening. We're getting better at reading the room. We're getting better at asking yeah. Like ask before you assume, um, yeah, and I and I think the future is looking better in terms of like how creativity sits within this. But I I would love to see more policymakers within mm. the cultural and artistic sector, just so that also like having people to represent. So if we are on a disability um, 
you know, a disability uh, table, then there needs to be someone who represents and has lived experience of that. It's really important that people are leading that conversation who have lived experience. Totally, totally. And um, we're crossing everything that you will, in your future, become a policymaker um, and affect that sort of change because you, you do so. understand it. Yeah, you do understand it. Um, and that's a beautiful note with which to to finish on. We've taken far too much of your time up already. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, just quickly, for some recommendations of your favourite poets, for those who are curious, um, who love poetry, who love the written word, uh, some of your favourite poets or poems um, that you'd, you'd want to um, share and suggest people um, read and get enthused about poetry. No, of course. I mean, I've got loads and my mind is doing... Okay, I, 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 there's loads. I mean, there's ones that I study and there's ones that I read as a writer. But yeah. I think for, for those who, who are not really into like maybe like reading outside the books that they know, I would say definitely look at like uh, Imam al-Ghazali. Um, and he... Like, <laughs> You know, the thing is with Imam Ghazali, he writes in such a beautiful way that you think he's talking about love, but it's talking about spirituality. Right. And I think this is why I think poetry is important because it, people can read it how they want to and how they perceive it or how it speaks to them. But yeah, so a poet that probably a lot of people haven't heard about, Imam Ghazali, great poet, also Muslim, um, but yeah, very well known as well. Can access his books very easily. Great, great. It was that. Was that the? Yeah, you, I was listening to uh, the pod you did, um, the People Not War podcast, and you recommended a Yemeni um, poet on there uh, who was assassinated in the sixties. Um, oh my god! Yes. Oh my god! I forgot. Yes. Um, how can I forget him, Mohammed <laughs> Mahmoud Zubaydi? Um, Okay, this is another thing that, like, translation, poetry and translation is so important for the diaspora children. Because, like, when you're Yemeni living in Liverpool and you want to access poets, that, you know, they share a similar identity of you being Yemeni. And Imam Ghazali's poetry was translated and there was an event held at Liverpool and I went to that. And because I'm not a reader of Arabic poetry, I, I, don't, I don't read Arabic very well. So being able to access the translation in English is such an empowering thing because first time I was able to hear a Yemeni poet, but translated. And I looked into his life and I just thought, oh my God, like his life is such an interesting journey. So if people don't know about Mohammed Mahmoud Zubairi, he was assassinated in the 60s for being a poet. He was a reformer. He wanted to change things. But he was exiled from Yemen for like 40 years. So to be a poet, to know the consequences that might hold in a country, is such a powerful thing because what's the, what's the threat? And there is a threat because art and poetry is a thing that really rattles political or social conversations. Absolutely. As we see now in the 21st century, any war that occurs, poets, artists, museums, historical buildings are the ones that are a threat. Mm. When the pandemic mm. hit, art was the first sector that was like threatened to cut um, finance. And I just oh, think yeah. to myself, like, 
people really underestimate. Like, yes, there are people they're painting rainbows and clouds and and for entertainment and all of that. But there are some of us who are maybe painting rainbows to tell a story, to talk about equality, to talk about inclusion, to talk about social affairs, to talk about political injustices. Like art can do both. It can also yes. entertain, but it can also change people's lives. Yeah. And this is why I think when war does occur, the first people that are to be assassinated or killed or imprisoned are poets, writers and artists. And mm. that is a fact. That is yeah. a fact. And it hasn't changed. The 21st century, we still see it today. Journalists, like the amount of journalists who have died just because of yeah. telling the truth or writing objectively. Yeah. Um, and hence why I'm in the sector, because I love a risk. I like a yeah. challenge. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Again, that is a, a beautiful note. I want to thank you so, so much for giving us so much of your time. Uh, it was a, a lovely conversation. Thank you. No, no, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, happy dyslexia every day. <laughs> You have been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk McGowan. And our guest today was the Scouse Yemeni poet, Amina Atik. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go and visit dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. Epic is a US-based non-profit organization. Epic creates bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, environmental degradation, human rights, and making peace please go and visit their website, epicprojects.org. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please go rate and subscribe. Leave us a little review even. It really helps the podcast grow.